And well, it's hard to think of a worse start, a more dismal start to 2020 with the fires, the destruction of habitat, the loss of lives, the destruction of property. And it's really hard not to fall into a pit of despair. But occasionally we've just got to sit back and celebrate what we have actually achieved. So here on Fuzzy Logic, very pleased to invite into the studio the ACT Minister of Climate Change and Sustainability, Shane Rattenbury. Good morning, Shane. Good morning. And joining me in the studio is uh, Tom Street, fellow Fuzzy presenter. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Now, Shane, we've uh, we've heard the stories. We, we've seen what's happening. The, the the newspaper photos, the television images of the the flames burning vast territories across the landscape. How are you affected by the fires? I think everyone in the community has been affected in some ways. It has been the most extraordinary summer. Really, in fact, late winter and even spring where we saw the fires starting in, North, in Queensland, northern New South Wales. It's been a very long season. For me, I was down the south coast uh, around that New Year time uh, at a place at South Durris. Fortunately, it's an area that ended up not being affected, but having grown up in Batemans Bay, for me, watching the fire sweep into places like Batemans Bay, Malua Bay, uh, Rosedale, all those sort of areas there were the places I grew up as a kid so it was it was quite an intense time and of course we saw the loss of power the loss of phone and internet uh, where we are we're on uh, water tanks so once the power goes the water pumps go and there's no water uh, so all of those things were I think very unsettling for a lot of people. Did you have a lot of smoke across uh, South Durris? No, not so much. We've probably had more here in Canberra, and I know that's been really disconcerting for a lot of people here in Canberra, particularly people with uh, you know, vulnerability to smoke, people with small children. It's been very distressing for a lot of people. And uh, Overall, it's been an anxious summer, and I think for a lot of people, you know, summer's that time where you rejuvenate, you recharge the batteries, and a lot of people have spent their time, frankly, worried, constantly monitoring fires near me, air raider all these kind of things and it's been a hard summer uh, being being traumatized even how did you notice the effect on the community of the people around you down the coast look for us it was uh it's a funny thing to say but it was a chance to get to know our community because people really came out to help each other and uh, we're new to the the community at south Doris. Uh, we've just uh, sort of got a small holiday shack down there and it's been a great way to get to know some people shame about the circumstances though and i guess we've been really lucky at south Durris. the fire never came yeah i saw that uh, when a tree came down near my house and all the neighbors came out people i've never even spoke to mm. we got the saws out we would start cutting up and stuff and so on now, um, uh, your responsibilities as a minister, did you find yourself with a, a, an extra Christmas workload? Yeah, absolutely. The ACT has been stood up right across the Christmas period, first of all dealing with the smoke situation, and then, of course, as the fires broke out, firstly south of the ACT, and then, of course, the Aurora Valley fire within the Territory. Uh, so our emergency services agency and many of our other agencies have been stood up right through the January period. Uh, we had evacuation centres here in the ACT. I'm also the Minister for Mental Health, so we had uh, mental health staff 
at those facilities helping people who'd come from the fire grounds. We've had people dropping in who were, you know, really having, I guess, memories from 2003 here in Canberra, feeling very vulnerable again. And so our mental health staff have been very busy. So well, there's been a spike in calls on that service? Certainly at the evacuation centre we had people coming in and our staff who are at those evacuation centres and support centres have been quite busy. Okay, now, uh, as a Canberra resident, Tom and I, and yourself, of course, Shane, uh, we are looking at renewable energy, and the ACT set a target for 100% by 2020. Well, here we are in 2020. Uh, What's happened? Well, officially, from the 1st of January, the ACT is 100% powered by renewable electricity. So despite the fact that I think people were very distracted on the 1st of January this year, there was a real milestone there for the Territory. It's been a number of years coming as we've commissioned and built the solar and wind farms that are supplying that electricity. Uh, But we are only the eighth jurisdiction in the world and the first outside of Europe to achieve that 100% renewable electricity goal. Uh, I feel like we should almost pop a a, a champagne here because uh, uh, in the midst of such terrible news, there's something that's actually good and it's kind of been smothered by the smoke and and the burning and so on. How far back does this initiative go? The, the thinking of this, the, the goal for 2020-100, where did that begin? Look, I think it really goes back, from my mind, to the 2008 election. We Greens won the balance of power. And in negotiating with the Labor Party, we said one of the most important things was we wanted to set bold emission reduction targets. And so out of that negotiation, we ended up legislating in 2010 that the ACT would cut its emissions by 40% by 2020. So having set that target, we then had to sit down and think about what the mechanisms were going to be to get there. And that sort of led to then those ambitious renewable electricity targets. And there's just been good, steady work. We've had great work by the ACT's public servants to design the system, I think the right political will to get it done. And we're now in a position where we can say to other jurisdictions, this is what's possible. If you set your mind to it and go for it, it's achievable. Yes, the the word that really screams into my consciousness when you say that is leadership. And wouldn't it be nice if Australia internationally on the global stage could be leaders? And I think that's become something that's become very clear over the summer is the frustration in the community. People understand the science across Australia. You know, the fires and the strange weather we've had have really underlined that. But people know what needs to be done. They know it's possible. And they are yearning for that leadership of action because climate, the consequences of climate change, no one can escape them. Yes, I think the, the fires have been real demonstration of that. Let's go back through some of the actual measures that got us to where we are. So there was that political initiative back in 2008. Uh, What did we do then to get to where we are now? Well, to get to the 100% renewables, the ACT ran a series of what are called reverse auctions. And essentially, we went out to the industry and said, you know, we need 100 megawatts or 200 megawatts of wind power. We had calculated how much we need. And we ran a series of those auctions where uh, the ACT was actually able to get the lowest prices seen for renewable energy in Australia ever at the time, back in 2013, 2014. Part of that was because at the same time, federally, Tony Abbott had assumed power by that stage and was undermining the national renewable energy target. So the industry was in a dire state. So the ACT really went into a buyer's market. And 
which was great for us in terms of getting a better price, but for the industry, you know, they will now say many of the industry only survived through that really tough period from sort of 2013 to 2015 on the contracts the ACT was leading because we were the only significant buyers in the market at the time. So when we say 100% now, that doesn't mean 100% generated within the ACT borders, right? Mm. Can you expand on that? No, that's exactly right. We don't have great renewable energy sources here in Canberra. Uh, a lot of our, the bulk of that renewable electricity is coming from wind, and the wind farms are spread across Australia. So there's some up in New England in Barnaby Joyce's electorate. Uh, there's a couple in Victoria. Uh, there's some just north of Crookwell up around Goulburn. So in Angus Taylor's electorate, I think it is in that area. So there's some irony in some of these decisions and quite a few in South Australia, which has, of course, got tremendous wind resources. So, you know, not... The ACT sits in the national electricity market, and some people raise a concern about this. It's not that we are generating all of our own power and using it, but we have gone out and bought the equivalent amounts of electricity that the ACT uses every year. We've commissioned new wind farms and new solar farms. So, the net, yeah, the net usage is, yeah. Now, what about storage? So we've had mm. on the program uh, Professor Andrew Blakers. Oh, yes. Uh, and who's an advocate of uh, pumped hydro electricity storage. Uh, is that something that we're looking at here in Canberra? We are starting to. I think there's a couple of areas. Obviously, battery storage is going to be a very significant source of storage, uh, both in terms of household batteries and then industrial-scale batteries like we've seen rolled out in South Australia, the big 100-megawatt one over there. Uh, then we'll also, the other interesting area will be the role electric vehicles play because they've, of course, got significant batteries in them and there's increasing thinking about what's called vehicle-to-grid. And so you can use the batteries in the car as a storage system. And at times you can, you know, during the day when the car's not being used and there's lots of solar, you can pump the car full of power and then maybe draw it down at night time. And so the mechanisms like that. So that's the battery side. And then the work that Andrew's doing particularly on pumped hydro, I think, hasn't taken off as much in Australia yet, but is a very important part of the future. Can you maybe give us a description of how that would work and where the opportunities for us might be? Yes, yeah, certainly. The work that Andrew Blakers has done, and I think he, you know, he's at ANU and is probably the leading researcher on it in Australia, he's identified thousands of sites across Australia. And basically, you just do, essentially, you build two dams uh, with a certain amount of height between them. And the idea is that during the day, you pump the water uphill when you've got lots of solar and lots of wind being produced. You store the water at the top. At night time when you need power, you let the water out down through a turbine. That generates electricity. And it's a closed loop. You don't need yep. to go damming any rivers. Well, we already have some of these in Australia. So up at Talbingo, yep. the Junama Pond is the lower storage and Talbingo the upper one. And, of course, the Snowy Hydro or Snowy 2.0, as they called it, uh, which is Talbingo Dam and Tantangra Reservoir, I believe. That's, that's a really big scale one. Mm, mm. Uh, the work that Andrew Blake has done sort of talks to the fact that you don't need to do it on such a huge scale. And there's a bit of debate about whether Snowy 2.0 is too big uh, or whether you should do it on a more decentralised basis. And I think that's research and science that people are still nutting out. I don't think there's a definitive answer on that yet. But certainly the back battery technology is very good. We are rolling out a significant program here in the ACT. We've now got more than 1,000 household batteries installed. The plan is to get about 5,000 over the next few years. And, uh, you know, people are slowly but surely taking those up. Ah, uh, yes. I want to ask you about household level first. Uh, but um, with the... The, the national electricity market and the grid uh, are now, I've also been told by another uh, researcher, 
Dr. Mark Diesendorf, mm -hmm. and he wrote a column for us. For our, we have our column in the Canberra Times, Ask Fuzzy, and he talked about the design of the grid, and the grid was designed... It's oriented around a few really large generators, the the um, coal-fired stations in particular. Uh, is that an issue for us, the design of the grid in ACT? Look, not so much in the ACT. Mark is absolutely right. The whole system was set up that you had centralised power production and all the power got pumped out in one direction. And it just went to the householders and went to businesses and all those things. In a modern grid, we need a complete transformation in the sense that with decentralised energy, people having solar panels on their roofs at home or perhaps on a big warehouse and all these other decentralised sites, you need a much more of a two-way grid. And I think that that is going to take some significant investment in coming years. Right. Our guest today on Fuzzy Logic is Shane Rattenbury, who's the ACT MLA, the Minister for Climate Change and Sustainability. Let's let's make it a little bit more little personal now. To, you mentioned uh, car to grid, uh, battery storage and solar panels. Uh, what's the current state of play with household generation? Here in the ACT, we have got a pretty good uptake of solar generation. We had our feed-in tariff here sort of between about 2009 and 2011. That led to a significant amount of up uptake by householders. And that really, as the prices come down, people have continued to invest even without the significant feed-in tariffs because it just makes economic sense now to have solar panels on your house. Yes, I, I put a six kilowatt system on my roof. Uh, and it's not really fair to ask you about my particular <laughs> electricity bill, but I've, I've been a bit disappointed about what I've got back on it. Mm -hmm. I, I thought I would be getting like zero uh, electricity bills, but uh, it's been really hard. I've got bundled gas and electricity. Do you have any recommendations for our listeners how to navigate the, their attachment to the grid or to, to the, the provider, who they go to and how they get the panels yeah, if I, I sort of touch on your example perhaps to start with, the key to it is what your energy usage pattern is. So for anybody who works full time, if you have solar panels on the roof and you're out all day, then you're not, take, you know, you're not perhaps getting maximum advantage of your own electricity because it just goes into the grid and then you come home at night and consume electricity at a time when it's more expensive and so you may not get that return. So my advice to people would be to... Talk to a solar company or maybe talk to a couple of solar companies to get some different advice. But you can also call up uh, AxSmart, which is the ACT government agency. There's also a website and you can go there and they can talk to you about your household and what your particular usage patterns are. If you're home all day, that can be an entirely different equation. So a lot of it goes to how you use power and even thinking about things of... You know, if you've got a washing machine that's got a timer on it that you can set, what's the best time to run your washing machine? Or a swimming pool uh, cleaners and exactly, and so exactly. On. Right. One thing I didn't uh, account for was the effect of shading on the panels, mm -hmm. uh, because you get the output from the panels of the worst performing one. Uh, so even partial shading will bring down the whole series. So I've, I've, got, <laughs> I've now got this conundrum, right? So I have this beautiful manifera gum tree out the front yard, and it's sequestered. I calculated about five tonnes, three tonnes of carbon. <laughs> and now I might have to chop the top of it off so that, uh, so that I don't <laughs> I get the generation out of my panels. Yeah, these are real dilemmas in the urban environment is getting the balance of these things right. You know, it speaks to the fact that in tree species selection in Canberra, we need to think very carefully about which trees do we put, put where so that we maximise solar gain in the winter when it is still cold 
but provide maximum shade in the summer when it's, of course, so hot here in Canberra. Now, urban design, that affects very much uh, how well a house can generate their own electricity. What uh, what thinking goes into the alignment of blocks, for example, uh, to maximise those opportunities? You're right to touch on that. You know, the alignment of the block is perhaps the fo- most fundamental thing you can do for the, uh, I guess, effectiveness, effectiveness of a house. Uh, and... I know there is some work that goes into that, but I think we could do better here in the ACT. We, of course, see many houses being lined up the wrong way, and certainly some of the large-scale apartment buildings are not being lined up to think most effectively how they can take advantage of the warm sun when needed and the shading when needed. Okay. We we might talk a little bit more about the batteries because you mentioned, Shane, the uh, uh, household uh, batteries, so the big uh, power wall from Tesla and, and a few other manufacturers now have that. Uh, we might break to a song break here on Fuzzy Logic. And our guest today is the ACT Climate Change and Sustainability Minister, Shane Rattenbury. And just before the show, we were discussing household uh, solar panels and so on, and we mentioned batteries, and you said batteries now are a target, and we could talk more about targets, of course, Shane, but uh, what's the story with householders wanting to put batteries in their house? Yeah, the ACT has got a subsidy program to help make the batteries more affordable. Like solar panels were about 15 years ago, they're still relatively expensive, but there are people who want to get involved and who can't afford it. And so the subsidy here in the ACT does help them make help make them more affordable. And we've got about five or six providers who you can contact, and they provide different ones. So you mentioned before the break the Tesla Powerwall. There's also batteries from other companies such as yeah, yeah, and so and Samsung and the like. And yep. so, uh, again, through the AxSmart uh program from the government that I mentioned before. There's independent advice there and then there's information there on the various commercial providers in the territory that have signed up to the government program and they're sort of official providers on behalf of the government. Okay, so I've got the six kilowatt system on my house and the next step would be for me if I want to do this is to uh, contact smartact.com gov.au yeah it's website. just through the environment website and the act government and they will guide us through the process for that they'll have information on this on the website that you can have a look at or if you prefer they have a contact number you can ring up and actually chat to somebody over in the department who can give you some more personalized advice and direction i i would recommend that myself because uh, my experience with the panels was i just went to a big provider and then they just outsourced it to a small contractor anyway and then when the contractor arrived, he went, oh, you don't want that inverter, blah, 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 blah. And anyway, <laughs> so the um, targets now, mm-hmm. 40% emissions reduction. Is that, did I get that correct from the uh, renewable energy? Yeah, that's been our goal is to cut our emissions by 40% by 2020. That's a target that matches what the scientists are telling us we should be doing. And so that's the reason the ACT adopted a target of that magnitude. That's sort of what industrial countries, developed countries, should be doing. Uh, We will meet that target. We're on track. Uh, It won't be finally measured until the middle of this year, but the ACT is on track to meet that target. And so what we've done now is set targets into the future. And so we've set the big target 
is to be uh, have zero net emissions by 2045. And that's in legislation. But what we've also done is put in place a series of interim targets in 2025, 2030 and 2040 to help us measure as we're going along. Because I think it's, you know, to just sort of say we want to be carbon neutral by 2045 is a long way away. And it's hard to know how you're going. So having these series of interim targets is a way of both, I guess, holding governments to account as we go. But as a community, if we're not meeting those targets, it's also a reflection for ourselves to think, well, what are we going to do to actually catch up if we're not if we're not getting the outcomes we we, we need, um, I, I think that's fantastic, Shane. Those those what we've achieved already in terms of zero net zero emissions and electricity and and the the zero emissions overall target for twenty forty five. And it makes me proud to be a Canberran to being that we're being responsible global citizens and showing some leadership even in in this space. Yeah, I think we've all got a moral responsibility to do our part in, for climate change. And particularly here in the ACT is, you know, one of the wealthiest cities on the planet in terms of the things we have available to us. You know, of course, there are people in our community who are disadvantaged. But overall, we are a, a very capable city. And I think as one of the most capable cities on the planet, we should be taking the leadership. And uh, I think we are doing that. Right. Yes, if, when, if, when, if we're not going to do it, then who, who will? Who will take that leadership role? Yeah. And uh, Kevin Rudd famously said it's the great moral challenge of our time. I never felt he really explained what he meant by that. That, that was my perception. Uh, how would you frame that? Uh, why, why is this a moral challenge? I think because we have the knowledge. The science is incredibly clear on climate change. We know that human-induced climate change is a reality. We know what the likely consequences are. The, the scientific modelling is becoming firmer and firmer every year. There is a global consensus on this. For me, the moral challenge lies in the fact that we are the generation that knows this and we are the generation that has the technology and the skills and the capabilities to address it. And therefore, we must start now. We cannot leave it to a future generation. And in fact, you know, one of the great emotional challenges for me, at least, and I know a lot of other people are feeling this over the summer, has been that I've been working on climate change issues for over 20 years. And when I first started, it was very much about a future generations. I didn't expect to see such clear evidence of climate impacts in my lifetime. And for ha to have it happen so obviously this summer... On uh, our watch. Yeah, it has been you know, personally quite confronting, actually. Yeah, and I think confronting for a, for a lot of people. But so how is the ACT going to meet its 2045 zero emissions targets? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Tom, and it does get in some ways harder from here. Once we get to, well, now that we're at 100% renewable electricity, our emissions profile changes quite a bit. Going forward, transport will be about 63% of our emissions. Natural gas use is about 22% of our emissions. So those two sectors, which are a big part of our lives, are the vast bulk of our emissions here in the ACT. So that focuses on what we need to think about going forwards. On those transport emissions, the interesting part of that is that Again, the vast bulk of that, around 95%, is just private motor vehicle use. So it's all of us going about our lives, going to our friends' houses, driving to work, dropping the kids off at school, all things we do, but they are the vast bulk of that transport emissions. Only the other 5% is sort of, you know, the action bus fleet and some light commercial vehicles around town. And in, in terms of transport and people's personal car use, what role can the ACT government play um, in, changing, in changing that? Or there is no simple answer to that question. When it comes to transport, we need to provide a series of options. 
we will need to electrify our transport fleet. So we'll need to move to electric vehicles. You mean public transport fleet? Well, both yeah. actually private, okay. private, private motor vehicles. But, so yes, we'll need to electrify the vehicles. We'll need to provide better public transport. Yeah. So light rail, better bus network. We need to make cycling easier for people and we need to make walking an option for people as well. So there's this whole series of steps we need to make, but it also goes to things like urban design. Canberra's traditionally a very spread out city in which you really need a car to get around. We need to be a more compact city. And if you think about some of the European cities that many people will have visited where you can walk to the shops, you can walk to places, or it's a simple cycle journey, we need to think about how can we make Canberra more like that. Yeah, I think some aspects of Canberra's urban design are um, are a bit strange in that we've got really low density in the inner suburbs like Turner and um, Reed, and then in the outer suburbs we're seeing higher density going in now, um, and that's a real problem in terms of yeah not having a lot of people living near the city and a lot of people needing to commute to work and. Um, yeah, yeah Canberra, a lot of Canberra's growth occurred through a period where, you know, building big freeways and everyone having their own car was very much in vogue. And you know, Canberra will stay like that for a while and the car will be a big part of Canberra's future, but we need to also give people alternatives. You know, I'd love to think that the average Canberra household, instead of needing the two or three cars they have now, might only need one car and they could make some of their other journeys through walking and cycling and public transport and the like. Now, different households will have different needs, but we need to make sure that we're not a city where you must have a car to get about your life. All right, now I want to ask you about something which I'm sure has caused you quite a lot of pain and it's been very contentious here in Canberra, and that's the tram. Mm -hmm. Okay, now what has happened? It's been in for a little while now. What's the, how's it looking? Yeah, look, we're, we're getting close to the one-year anniversary since the services started here in the ACT. You are right to touch on the fact that it was very contentious, of course. At the 2016 ACT election, we had a very clear choice, and the community supported, I guess, both Labor and the Greens to uh, supporting the project. Uh, we've gone ahead and built it. I guess the good news is, so far, it's been very successful. We've seen patronage at higher levels than anticipated, and our biggest complaint about light rail has been, in fact, that it's too crowded and that we need more services. And just this week, the government has announced that more services have been funded. There'll be a greater frequency, and the peak periods are being widened so that the services run more often. So this is a great sign. I think people have really embraced the light rail. Yes, because I imagine the worst thing would be empty trains chugging up and down Northbourne Avenue. That would be your worst nightmare, right? Indeed it would have been, but that has not been the problem. As I say, the biggest problem has probably been crowding. But the other part of it that's been really interesting is how quickly the urban renewal around the light rail corridor has started to take off. And we've seen that including with things like the Mantra Hotel that got built on the corner of uh, Northbourne and MacArthur Avenue, for example. Uh, a number of, obviously, residential developments in the area. And so you will start to see over time a bit of a transformation of the city where you'll have more people who will live in that corridor and who can take light rail or you know, take light rail and take their bike on the light rail and then make that cycle journey at the cycle, end of their trip. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what's your take on the various alternatives? So in the media there was discussion about trackless trams mm. and uh, self-driving cars and all this kind of thing. What, what was, what's your feeling about those options? Look, I think that some of those things will play a part in the future. The trackless trams, I'm not so convinced about at this point in time. I mean, you keep an open mind on these things, but you know, the great advantage of light rail and why it's considered to be such an excellent form of transport is that you have the certainty. The tracks are there in the ground. People know that it will always be there. It's easy to navigate. It's comfortable. 
the trackless trams have some of those features, I, I gather. Uh, the axles on them are great, and so it's a much more comfortable ride than the average bus. Uh, and one of the advantages is said to be that you can lay the, the guiding markers very quickly and not as expensively as building light rail tracks. You can put, literally put them down in a weekend, I've seen some articles say. What that also means is you can take them out in a weekend. And, you know, one of the frustrations people have with buses is the routes change. They're not sure if they'll still be there, these sort of things. So uh, I think light rail has a range of advantages over the trackless trams. Uh, self-driving cars, that's a really interesting part of the story as well. The people I talk to say that it's probably we're some distance from having truly autonomous vehicles. We've got a lot of autonomy coming into our vehicles now. There's five sort of uh, levels of autonomy. To get to the real autonomous vehicles where literally you don't need a driver, most people say we're some distance from. Just getting over that threshold is going to be really hard. But where those vehicles could be really valuable is what's called the last mile. And so you might take the light rail to, say, Dixon and then get into a autonomous vehicle to be dropped the two kilometres to home. Oh, okay, so it's an integrated transport system, isn't it? So buses, taxis, bicycles, walking, all of these things, they're not individual components. They all mesh together to make something. Is that, is that how you see it? I think that is the answer. You know, if you imagine if every person in Canberra suddenly started taking an autonomous vehicle wherever they wanted, whenever they wanted, I suspect the congestion in our city would be horrendous. I think so. I, I wrote a column for Canberra Times a couple of weeks ago about Jeevan's paradox, and the paradox says that if you make something cheaper, more efficient, people use it more. Mm. And I'm guessing that if we had that in a driverless car, people will go, oh, it's so easy, off I go. And there's some evidence of that out of New York with the effect of Uber, where they've actually seen an increase in traffic congestion. I've seen a couple of early studies on this that are suggesting in some of those US cities they've actually seen traffic volumes go up with the arrival of Uber because people who used to go, oh, look, I'll walk the eight blocks or I'll jump on the subway, suddenly went, oh, look, Uber's so cheap, I'll just get my own vehicle and and up I'll go. And so you've actually seen an increase in usage. And I guess the Uber has to not just make the trip that you're making, but also has to get to you in the first place. So Mm. it's two trips instead of one. Potentially, yeah. Yeah. um, You were saying something interesting to me before about the large auto manufacturers, a lot of them around the world are saying by 2035 that they're planning to switch to making just electric vehicles. Mm. And that was really interesting to me. And I've been wondering, how does the ACT on its own make that transition from people using petrol-powered vehicles to electric ones? But I guess what you were saying to me is that the, the whole world is going in this direction anyway and um, I'm not sure what my question is (laughs) No, it's definitely a global trend we've seen uh, probably two things various of the automakers have various dates at which they've said they will stop making internal combustion engines they will go to electric vehicles or in some cases hydrogen vehicles Uh, similarly we've seen some countries start to adopt phase out dates where they say they'll no longer permit new internal combustion engine vehicles to be sold or registered or whatever. In. And so you've seen that in some of the northern European countries. So there is definitely a large global trend going on, and the ACT is not a player in that. We will be on the receiving end of it. But as the ACT, we need to be ready for that, and it's obviously going to help us solve our, some of our emissions issues. Certainly here in Canberra, we've adopted a... We put in place an electric vehicle action plan uh, about 18 months ago. And the first part of that is our commitment that the ACT government fleet will be 100% zero emission vehicles within three years. And so the ACT government has a fleet of 
several hundred vehicles. You know, they're used by our community nurses who they go around and visit people. They're used by various bureaucrats and officials to do the things they need to do. And so they're all on a three-year lease cycle. So we've said basically that as each car now comes out of its lease, we will replace it with either an electric or a hydrogen vehicle. And will we be doing things like changing the registration fees to favour electric vehicles? The ACT already has some of the best incentives in Australia. In fact, we have the best incentives for electric vehicles. You get zero stamp duty and a 20% discount off your registration. Uh, in terms of some of the discussion that is around on you know, the loss of fuel excise and how are we going to recoup that in the future, we don't have a plan at the moment, but we are certainly participating in those national discussions of what we'll do. I think we should break to a, uh, another song. What do you think, uh, Tom? Uh, yeah, great uh, idea. On Fuzzy Logic, our guest today, we're talking sustainability, the future of ourselves, the climate and so on, with a member for ACT in government, uh, Shane Raddenbury, who's the Minister for Climate Change and Sustainability. And a bit of music to lighten your day here on 2XX Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. And oh, please don't forget to subscribe to 2XX. It's actually quite expensive to run a radio station. And your subscriptions are always, always appreciated. Our guest today on Fuzzy Logic is Shane Raddenbury, who's the ACT Minister for Climate Change and Sustainability. Uh, actually, Shane, how many other ministers have climate change in their title? Do you know that in Australia? In Australia, I don't know that there's any others at the moment. Mostly it, it tends to be the environment ministers or sometimes the energy ministers in other jurisdictions that have the, the responsibility. Or some jurisdictions just haven't um, specifically named it. Okay. Now, we were talking about uh, how we reduce our emissions and just run us quickly again through the breakdown of the proportion of emissions from various sources. Uh, electricity grid was 40%. What were the other ones? Yeah, so after we've got to the 100% renewable electricity, our future emissions profile will be around 62 or 63% from transport, about 22% from natural gas use, and then the other areas come from... Uh, waste emissions and industrial emissions. Okay, so uh, another big ticket item after we've uh, done uh, transport and electricity, gas. Mm. What's the story with gas? I imagine this is quite complicated. It is quite complicated. Certainly here in the ACT, for many decades now, we've been told that gas is the cheap and clean alternative. And historically it was. You know, gas was quite inexpensive, but we've seen with the export market come up, the gas price has gone up a lot for people, and I know people have really seen increases in their bills. And, of course, now gas is simply another fossil fuel. In the old days, when it was an alternative to perhaps getting uh, you know, brown coal-fired electricity from Victoria, natural gas was relatively cleaner. But now, compared to having 100% renewable electricity, gas is simply another fossil fuel that is part of our emissions profile and we will need to phase out of. Okay, now, as another test case for us today, uh, my house has ducted gas heating. We put that in maybe 25 years ago into our house, a frigid little house in Canberra. Uh, replacing it would be quite expensive. Uh, what, what are my options? Yeah, look, in that time, in that 25 years, certainly the electrical technology has come a lot, a long way. Uh, so the modern uh, split-cycle air conditioners are much more efficient, uh, both in terms of how much energy they use, but also the job they do in your house. And so what we are seeing is that already a lot of people are making the change because they're finding they're more cost-effective, 
you know, you can save quite a bit of money by going all electric because aside from anything else, you don't have to pay a gas connection fee, which is a couple of hundred bucks a year. Uh, certainly, the government is signalling that we want to phase out of the use of natural gas. And so we do, we have some incentives in place, but your system will presumably come to the end of its natural life sometime soon. They have, they have a lifetime of, you know, 25 or 30 years. You've obviously done very well out of yours. Um, you know, and what we would be saying to you is have a look at the electric alternatives at that time when your system comes to its last legs is have a look at the electric alternatives. Ah, uh, okay. So something like a reverse cycle system, you mean? Is that- yes, yep. Yeah, and we're not, we're not saying pull it out now. You know, you should get the full life out of your gas system, but we need to transition out of gas over the next 20 years or so. And so when your system reaches the end of its life, okay, that will be the time to make that transition because, you, you know, you'll, you'll have to buy a new one one way or the other. The and question is whether it will be gas or electricity. And you mentioned uh, the ActSmart uh, mm. government service. So will they advise me on that if I want to have a... Absolutely. They've got a whole lot of information on their website or, as I said earlier, you can ring them up and have a conversation with them and get some advice for, you know, your size, house how often you're there, all of those kind of questions. Okay. And now domestic consumption, that's one aspect. What are the other aspects of, uh, of gas utilisation? Look, predominantly in the ACT, gas has been largely used for um, space heating. Uh, we don't have big industrial users in the ACT in the sense of large manufacturers and some of those things. So predominantly gas use in the Territory has been all about space heating in our cooler winters. Okay, there's, there's talk about uh, hydrogen being used as mm. an alternative. Uh, what are the opportunities there? Look, I think the future of hydrogen is very exciting. We've just seen a national hydrogen strategy put together by Australia's chief scientist, Professor Alan Finkel. Uh, that's very much targeted at exporting hydrogen, giving Australia a new source of export income. Uh, certainly here in the ACT, we are looking at hydrogen. Uh, Evo Energy is currently conducting some experiments to look at how hydrogen goes in our existing gas gas network infrastructure. Uh, There is a belief that you can inject hydrogen into the gas network. Uh, Most people think up to about 10 to 12%. Hydrogen burns differently. So your current, say, gas cooktop at home, you couldn't run it on 100% hydrogen. It burns in a different way. Uh, But you can blend in about 10, 12, maybe 15% and continue to use your current technology. So Evo's got a great experiment going out at CIT Fishwick where they're checking that hydrogen doesn't degrade the pipes, for example, in the current gas network. Uh, okay. Now, that's... But if, if we want to get to zero emissions, that's not good enough to have 15% hydrogen, right? We need to, to cut out the... the the natural gas altogether. Yeah, in the long run it won't be. We'll need to get rid of the natural gas. and so. But the hydrogen technology, I guess, is still in the developmental stage. It's right. still learning and research going on about it. It offers potential in the future. It might be that we end up with an all-electric future. Yeah. Uh, but certainly, you know, if we could put 10, 12, 15% of hydrogen into our gas network in the next few years, that would certainly provide some level of decarbonisation of our 10, gas 10-15% decarbonisation. Yeah. So, so Which people in the climate crisis, I think, is worth it in the so, short term. So people are looking into how to generate hydrogen from renewable sources, say from wind farms during periods of peak wind activity when we're not using it as electricity, I'm guessing, and, and then perhaps we can use that in our gas networks and export it overseas as a new industry. That, that's what you're talking that's about? That's certainly some of the thinking. Yeah. The new national hydrogen strategy deals with a lot of these questions. I, I was at the national meeting that adopted. I go on behalf of the ACT as our energy minister. Uh, one of my frustrations was that at the moment that strategy allows for hydrogen to be produced from 
black or brown coal as well right. as renewable sources such as wind and solar. I don't think that's the way of the future because that just gives those coal industries another life at a time where, because of the climate crisis, we need to be phasing them out. But you know, that's a transition that we'll keep fighting for over the next few years. Yes, and you mentioned the the coal mines, and of course that makes me think of the coal miners and the coal mining communities. Now, of course, we don't have any of that uh, in the ACT, but what are your thoughts about how we help communities through the transmission, uh, transition, I should say? Yeah. Look, and there's a term around the climate debate, I suppose, called the just transition, the idea that we need to make the transition but we need to do it in a way that is fair to everybody in our community and for some people that'll mean extra assistance so those who work in coal mines we will need to think about what are their jobs going to be in the future how are we going to maintain those rural communities or those regional communities uh, not just leave them behind even here in the act those questions of a just transition are very real for us and it features very strongly in our in our climate strategy through the coming years you know one local example would be we've got a big fleet of diesel buses in action at the moment. We want to transition away from those. We've got a commitment to have a zero emissions bus fleet by 2040. But right now we've got a team of diesel mechanics that works on our buses here in Canberra. What are their jobs going to be in the future? We need to make sure, for example, we either retrain them to work on electric buses or we talk to them you know, about moving into a different industry. And so I think there's a really important role for government to make sure that we don't leave people behind as we make this very necessary transition. That's a really, really important point because this is not just about the bits of technology, about the whirring and the clunking of bits of machinery around our city. Mm. This is ultimately about people, isn't it? Now, um, speaking of uh, people, makes me think of food. Mm -hmm. And uh, today's Ask Fuzzy in the Canberra Times. We have two researchers from the University of Canberra, who, by the way, we'll be interviewing next week uh, during the Multicultural Festival. And they're talking about the future of food and food sustainability. What's the thinking now about food sustainability in the ACT? Can we do an equivalent of say the 20 the 100 by 2020 or something like that certainly food is a big issue when it comes to the climate change debate and i'm sure you and many of your listeners will recall we saw the report from the intergovernmental panel on climate change in the middle of 2019 so six months or so ago talking about the impact that food production has in terms of global emissions and the need to reduce emissions in food production Certainly at a local level, I think we can do a lot more to produce more food here in Canberra, uh, which, of course, cuts down food miles, but I think is also you know, a great community builder and you know, really reminds people where food comes from. I think a lot of people have lost that sense of where their food does come from, and that leads to a lot of wastage uh, and perhaps some poor, poor food choices. Uh, but we've got a lot of space in the ACT where we could do urban food production, and that's an area I think we've got like a lot of potential for. Community gardens and that kind of thing as well? Yes. Or, yep. or what about commercial scale within the bounds of the city? Yeah, we don't have a lot of commercial food production in the ACT. We've got about 160 uh, farmers in the ACT who are considered you know, regional food producers. They're doing uh, um, meat, uh, chooks, eggs those sort of things, but not on a massive scale in the ACT, given our small land area. But certainly we could do a lot more, um, particularly fruit and vegetable growing within the urban environment, whether it's in community gardens. We've got a lot of urban 
open space and so we've seen some great examples like the Lynham Commons, uh, the City Farm, where you get you know, real community involvement and the sharing of knowledge and the building of community, which are great things as well as the fact that you get locally produced food. Yes, well, I think you mentioned uh, that uh, food comes out of a plastic bag from a supermarket. Uh, isn't that where it's grown? <laughs> but uh, that, that makes me think of waste. And, of course, we have plastic waste and other forms of waste. What are our, initi- our initiatives on those fronts? Of course, the ACT adopted the, the uh, ban on lightweight plastic bags many years ago. That's gone very well. It's reduced a significant amount of waste to landfill. But the ACT has a big ecological footprint. I touched earlier on us being relatively a wealthy community, which means relatively we are a big consuming community. And so we have a much bigger impact on the planet as an average Canberran than most people do. Uh, so we've got a long way to go, and I think there's a lot of channels there. The government's now talking about we're going to put a ban on some single-use plastics within uh, the next year. But like straws, you mean? Things like straws. straws. You know, you think about a straw. For most people, you get that straw, you use it for maybe a few minutes, and then you throw it away. And that straw lasts for hundreds of years in the environment, hundreds of years. Now, of course, there are some in our community with a disability who, or various medical conditions who need straws, and we need to be really mindful of those things. But the vast bulk of us could probably drink that drink without needing a straw. Okay, now to shift the turf considerably, uh, we've just had a change of leadership in the Greens at the national level, mm. and Adam Bant has referred to the Green New Deal, right? Yes. Which that phrase comes from the United States. Do you have a feeling about that? Yeah, look, I think it's a very important concept. It is the idea that the current system is not working, either for the environment or for equity and social justice, and we need to rethink the world that we live in. Uh, we need to think in terms of the impact we have on the planet, but also how we distribute wealth across our community. How do we look after those who are currently doing it tough? Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm really pleased that Adam's bringing that to the fore. It is an idea that's been kicking around in the US. There's been talk about it here in Australia for a number of years, across the UK. Uh, I look forward to seeing Adam really articulate those policies over the, the coming year or so. So would you say that the things we're seeing now, the climate change, the bushfires and so on, they're really symptoms of a broken system? I think you're right about that. And, you know, we've seen here in Canberra that both environmental and social impact. If you look at the way the smoke rolled into Canberra for weeks at a time, uh, you know, some of the people who suffer the most were those who, for example, were homeless, couldn't get away from the smoke. Uh, Those who, some people left the city, but they were able to afford to do that. But there were plenty of people who couldn't afford to do that. So it underlines the fact that climate change is not just an environmental issue. It's very much a people issue and a social justice issue. Yes, and we seem to be addicted to growth, and so we're slavish uh, about uh, following the latest trend in GDP Mm. and so on, and population growth. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? That's very clear, and one of the things we're working on in the ACT ACT at the moment and will be launched in March is having a set of wellbeing indicators. So we'll try and measure the performance of the ACT, not just on those traditional economic measures, but also a series of measures that look at quality of life issues, um, fairness issues, and that'll be launched in time for Canberra Day this year. And that'll then inform future budgets and how we measure progress here in the ACT. Oh, so maybe you don't want to say on air now, but you think we might move to something like the, I think it's called the gross progress indicator, or there's a few of those. Is there's a few different things around. We're certainly looking at that at the moment. We're very much in a design phase, but looking to measure all sorts of things, including, you know, obviously health, 
uh, people's mental health and well-being, which is very important in our modern world, I think, uh, but also issues of, you know, how much spare time do people have? What, how much... Um, What's our quality of life? Yes, yes, very yeah. much, you know. So we've which got is, the new big screen TV, but we're not happy. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so it's a, it's a recognition that money isn't happiness, basically. Well, that's very true. Yeah. And, you know, we cannot all continue to simply buy everything we want all of the time. Mm. One of the things I've taken, I'm also the Minister for Consumer Affairs here in the ACT, and at the recent national meeting, I took the idea of a right to repair in Australia to that, to that meeting to say, you know, at the moment there are so many products we know that, you know, they're obsolete, they become technically obsolete, or if they break, you cannot open them to repair them. And this is a bit of a global movement that's building that idea that you should be able to have the technology and the spare parts to be able to repair your device, which is a way of reducing consumption and reducing our impact on the planet. Uh, now, uh, Shane, we're coming to the end of our show here, uh, but uh, some quick things coming up. Uh, like today, I've mentioned we have a column in the Canberra Times about uh, the future of food and nutrition and our interviews next week with two researchers from the University of Canberra. And for next week's Ask Fuzzy, I've written a little story about a thing called Brazer's Paradox. And uh, yes, it's a bit obscure, but it's actually very relevant to our conversation today because uh, Brazer's looked at the, the performance of networks, i.e. traffic systems. And sometimes, and this is shown uh, through actual examples, traffic flow in, is better through a city when you remove a piece of roadwork. And there have been cases where a road blockage has actually made traffic flow better. And uh, we also have another one uh, coming up on the question of what is sustainability. Uh, very close to our hearts here on Fuzzy Logic. Uh, any final thoughts before we wrap up, uh, Shane? Look, thanks for the conversation and the chance to come on today. We are facing some big challenges, both here in Canberra and globally, in terms of how do we live our lives in a way that doesn't continue to undermine the sustainability of the planet. I have optimism in the sense that a lot of people understand the need for change. We have the technology and we have a lot of people very committed to making those changes. So you know, my advice to people who are interested in these sort of issues is read up on them and think about how you can make a difference in your life, whether it's at home or in your profession. I, I, I want to say um, congratulations, Shane, and um, to the ACT government on achieving zero net emissions for electricity and, and setting those targets for 2045 of uh, zero emissions for the whole of the ACT. Um, I think that's something we can all be proud of as Canberrans, that, that that's what we're doing and that's the leadership that we're showing about this really important issue. Um, and you said earlier that you'd be open to people sending questions in to us regarding the, our transition to zero emissions in the future. Have they got any questions around that, how we're going to achieve it, um, that they could... You can look at, uh, send us messages, like a voice message to our Facebook page, and we can pass that on to Shane and um, air his response on Fuzzy Logic on future shows. Uh, I'm very um, happy to do that, Tom, no problem. Thank you. Um, and also, if you've got any questions about climate science or science in general, you can also send us questions in voicemail to the Fuzzy Logic Facebook page, and we'll get experts to answer those questions and air the, and of course, their responses. Yes, and we have our email contact through the Canberra Times, which is askfuzzy at zoho.com.